Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Today on The Brian Lehrer Show, six things that changed since Sandy and five that haven't. Why de Blasio and Loda are both running against the Green Borough Taxis. Ten ideas for an innovative New York from the new exhibit at the Guggenheim, Participatory City, and building social infrastructure as a human seawall against the next big wave. We all remember where we were when the storm surge came crashing in a year ago today. Among the things that have not changed in the last year, thousands of people remain displaced from their homes, 26,000 in Ocean County alone as of a month ago, according to the County Planning Board. WNYC News has identified six things that changed since Sandy and five that haven't. They're posted on our site under the headline uh, of six things that changed since Sandy and five that haven't. Let's hear about some of them now from WNYC editor Matthew Sherman and correspondent Janet Babin, who has done so much post-Sandy reporting. Good morning, both of you. Good morning. Good morning, Brian. And listeners, let's keep building the list. What has changed since Sandy? What hasn't changed that should? 212-433-WNYC-433-9692. What has changed since Sandy and what hasn't changed that should? 212-433-WNYC-433-9692. Matthew, your number one item that has changed implies things that haven't. Property owners are buying up temporary flood walls. What's a temporary flood wall anyway? Basically, it's something that you can keep in your basement. And when a hurricane is coming, you get it out of the basement, put around in your building. Some of these things are actually large inner tubes that you fill with water, but they're maybe a a foot to three feet high in diameter. Uh, The ones that I saw were made of plywood. They almost look like track and field hurdles that are lined up side by side, and they go around the building. They have a little rubber gasket underneath uh, so that when the water comes, the gasket presses down, and they keep the water out. Why are people doing this, especially in lower Manhattan and, and you know, right by the battery? Uh, Jane's Carousel in, in Dumbo has one too. It's to provide some short-term, fairly inexpensive relief in case another storm hits us. And while the city and the state and the country really are working on much bigger, longer-term, permanent, comprehensive solutions. And the article says people are buying these temporary flood walls rather than wait for the city's big plans to come to fruition. Which big plans are those? There are 257 of them uh, that the mayor outlined in June in the special initiative for rebuilding and resiliency is what he called it, the SUR. And there are lots of little different things specific to particular neighborhoods, but he actually does envision possibly at some point putting up larger versions of these temporary flood walls around lower Manhattan. Uh, In fact, there will be some going in, I'm told, later this year, or I shouldn't say going in because they're temporary, but there will be some fitted out for Hospital Row on the east side of Manhattan later this year. Item number two that has changed also implies things that haven't. I think I see a pattern. At last count under Governor Cuomo's buyout plan, the state of New York has purchased about six sandy-damaged homes in Oakwood Beach, Staten Island, 
What will the state do with those properties? They'll knock down the buildings if they're not already knocked down. Uh, I guess take out uh, some of the sewerage and plumbing and then let that land go back to open space. Make it uh, a buffer area so that uh, the next flood comes. Uh, It won't be running into asphalt. It won't be running into houses. It'll actually be absorbed to some degree. And it won't be putting people and property at risk. So that's what has changed. There'll be barrier islands instead of homes or barrier lands. Right. But why just six? Well, it's potentially they're, – they're looking at several hundred more who are interested. It just – the whole process takes some time to get – this is money that comes from the federal government. You, you know, selling a house takes a few months. Uh, so there are at, at least half a dozen that have closed so far. Last time I checked sometime last week, uh, maybe another dozen in the coming days even. Um, potentially 300, more than 300 homeowners uh, are interested in this in Oakwood Beach. And I mean, the governor envisioned a much bigger uh project here, a much bigger buyout. Uh, and he's offered some buyouts to Long Island uh, homes as well, homeowners as well. And so far, those aren't as far along. There isn't as great an interest uh, among some people. This was one area in Staten Island that I guess has been hit by floods repeatedly, and people are really fl- fed and, up. And even there, just in Oakwood Beach, you say 300 other homeowners home, uh, just there are waiting in line for the same deal, while only six homes have actually been purchased. So that suggests that there are miles and miles of coastline that the state wants to acquire and return to nature, but they're not getting it done. The state, there are certainly lots of other people I know in Staten Island who want to get bought out, Um, hundreds for sure, maybe even more than a thousand. But the state has certain criteria. It's hard to buy out just a home here or there uh, and leave what's called a jack-o'-lantern effect of some homes left standing. And then suddenly there are five homes in the neighborhood that's Uh completely deserted. So everybody in a community or on a stretch needs to decide that they want this. More or less, yes. I mean, there will be some, I think, peer pressure. There will be some critical mass that's built up. It's all supposed to be voluntary because it's it's, it's really – you know, bringing this whole buyout issue into a whole other dimension if if the governor were to make it mandatory. Listeners, what do you think has changed since Sandy and hasn't changed since Sandy that should here on the one-year anniversary? 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. We have a list on our website from WNYC News. Editor Matthew Sherman is here. Reporter Janet Babin is here. Let's hear yours, 212-433-9692. What has changed since Sandy? What hasn't changed that should, 212-433-WNYC? And, Janet, what we were just discussing with Matthew brings me back to the number one thing on the list that hasn't changed that I mentioned at the top of the hour. In Ocean County, where you've done a lot of reporting, 26,000 people still out of their homes, the official number as of a month ago, Lots of people elsewhere, too. Is Ocean County the biggest concentration? I believe it is, Brian. Um, Properties near the coastline were hardest hit, very close to the ocean. And also on the bay side, they were hit hard as well. And then we have pockets inland like Sayreville and other parts of New Jersey that were hard hit. But I do believe the largest concentration is in Ocean County. When you're down by the Jersey Shore, you just it feels like a ghost town still. Why is that taking so long? Well, there are a number of reasons. Uh, I I would say 
First off, what we're seeing is that while uh, FEMA, the federal government, uh, is giving lots of money through uh, in the form of grants and uh, loans to states to funnel to people, people are not getting these grants. We found uh, that um, many people are just uh, having to sift through so much red tape that it's become impossible for them to get the grants they need. Uh, in fact, uh, we found that as of last week, while 15,000 people had applied for this one major rebuilding grant in New Jersey, only about 100 people, 100 people had actually received a check from the federal government. Another problem we're seeing, Brian, is that many of the homes in New Jersey that were in the hard-hit communities are second homes. And um, people who own these secondary homes consider this like the big scarlet letter S for secondary home. They are not eligible for many of the grant programs or the loan programs. And that is really creating a problem because if you have a second home, that you're next to someone who lives year-round by the shore, those people don't have the money to rebuild. Interesting. We took calls yesterday on the show for a lawyer who's helping people with their sandy claims, whether with the government or with private insurance that aren't being fulfilled yet. And I was surprised, I guess I shouldn't have been, at the number of people with second homes who were calling in to ask, can I do anything? And I thought, oh, gosh, uh, you know, that doesn't represent that many people. I don't know anybody who has a second home. And, uh, and we often think And yet, that, this is a whole excluded yeah, class. Yes. And we often think of people with second homes as wealthy, right? But in many cases in New Jersey, these homes are sort of handed down generation through generation, little beach bungalows um, where people have inherited these homes. So it's not as if they're wealthy and this is their, ooh, fancy second home. And does Governor Christie have a plan like Governor Cuomo? For some of these people to buy up coastal homes that were damaged and destroyed or destroyed and not build back, expand the natural buffer against the next surge? I have to say Governor Christie was first with his buyout buyout program, I think, ahead of Governor Cuomo. However, even so, it wasn't until July that we heard a definitive plan from the Christie administration about buying out homes, and I believe this was in the area of Sayreville, more inland uh, communities that that are consistently devastated by a flood. All right, listeners, what has changed since Sandy? What hasn't changed that should? 212-433-WNYC and John in Paramus. You're on the air. Hi, John. Hi, Brian. I think what has changed is that people have now taken it upon themselves individually to prepare for any type of disaster and buying generators and waterproofing their own house. And that they're not depending upon the government to help them out. They're taking matters in their own hands. And unfortunately, what hasn't changed is the red tape, the bureaucracy of FEMA and the federal government and the unequal distribution of uh, funds to help the people. Some people get it. I don't understand. Some people get money right away. and Other people are still waiting for money. Thank you very much. Uh, that unequal distribution. We are seeing that. Uh, to to the caller's first point, though, I would say that the people who are making the most progress along the Jersey Shore are the people who have um, decided to forego any type of grant or loan from the federal government and are taking matters into their own hands to rebuild with their own money. We heard from people taking out their life insurance policies or cashing that in, rather. People who are you know, using the federal gr- loan program. Those are the people I'm seeing who are making the, the most progress. So I I do think that people are trying to prepare, Brian, 
but we are seeing so much red tape and people don't have the answers. For example, how high do I raise up my home? We have a couple who raised up their home only to find out that the flood maps from the federal government changed and now they are no longer eligible for oh, a boy. credit from their insurance Because they didn't go high enough. They went too high and FEMA, the federal government is saying, well, actually you were in compliance already, so we can't give you money to raise up over our compliance level. And Matthew, that same number one item on the list of things that haven't changed about people being displaced from their homes. Quotes, retired police detective Bill Owens of Staten Island, still displaced, who says he's still waiting for permits from the city to rebuild. So again, uh, an example of disparate impact? He is one of those people, actually, who is using his own money, insurance proceeds. He's also one of those people who's had to wait for FEMA to redo the flood maps. People in Long Island, interestingly enough, they're not getting their flood maps redone. So they're potentially a little bit further along on this game. They knew how high they had to, to build, but but uh, New York City and New Jersey had been so had been so long since they had had their flood maps redone that they had to wait for new ones to come out. Is it disparate impact? He's He tells me he's one of the first people he knows in the neighborhood, maybe the only one who's actually rebuilding at this point mm. uh, because other people are waiting uh, for plans. They're waiting for money from the federal government. So in some way, he's actually further along, but he's had to wait for a lot of these parts to, to come to come together, he says that that his plans, for example, have been passed from the from the Department of Buildings in the city to FEMA and back in part because he is one of the first to rebuild. What changed? What hasn't changed? That should in the year since Sandy Dan in Long Beach. You're on WNYC. Hi, Dan. Hi. How are you? Good. Uh, I guess what has changed is I'm noticing in Long Beach that a lot of the homes are being elevated, which is always uh, you know a great thing to see that uh, it'll take the risk and the uncertainty out of a lot of people's uh, worries. But I guess what I'm, what I'm curious as to why the government came up with a number, I, I, I've heard somewhere in the neighborhood of 30000 or $35,000 to help people get their homes elevated, and why the government wouldn't want to help uh, take on more of that expense. Because in the end, uh, if FEMA is bonifying the insurance companies, wouldn't that just alleviate the risk from the future for uh, the, the flood uh, policies on a whole, if, if we could get everybody elevated in, in a safer constructed home. Dan, how much does it actually cost? If that's thirty thirty five thousand dollars from the government, what is it actually costing? I'm hearing uh, numbers uh, around ninety to a hundred thousand dollars when it's all said and done. If you had an existing structure, you had to elevate it. They put it onto a temporary elevation. Mm-hmm. They pour the concrete foundation, and then the logistics of the plumbing and the electrical all having to be adjusted, and then putting the house back down onto that foundation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's another probably $60,000, wow. give or take. That a lot of people can't afford, Janet. So why isn't it higher if it is, as Dan describes, insurance against this happening again and the government having to lay out more money? I think what we're seeing, Brian, is a tension between local officials and and, um, state officials wanting to make sure there is no fraud or waste, hearkening back to what happened after Katrina. 
So there's a tension between towing the line and making sure that there are strict regulations, and that is butting up against homeowners who cannot deal with these uh, regulations from their local officials. There is so much that homeowners have to do to get that grant, that increased cost of compliance grant that our caller was talking about, that many people I spoke to in New Jersey actually have decided, the heck with it, we're not even going to bother trying to get this grant because you have to, for example, use specific contractors. That's being changed now, but initially you had to you couldn't use your own contractor you had to go to someone else that the government had chosen and you had to show them every receipt and you couldn't start building until they came to your house and that took months of waiting and people didn't want to wait in new york city i should say new york city i'm not so sure about new jersey or new york state but i think they're also um while there is a $30,000 grant that's sort of a standard increased cost of compliance, which I think, by the way, is a national number. I think that's a national in, in, um, FEMA program, and therefore there are probably places that are where building and elevating is a little cheaper than, than in our, our area. But there is an option where you can go to get some of this other federal money that we've been talking about to maybe bridge the gap between 30000 and 90000 I'm not saying it's going to be easy. There are a lot of income guidelines, a lot of red tape and such, but I say that as a bit of advice for your Long Beach caller uh, that there might be some other pots of money to draw from. And I see you have a great photo on the site with the five things that ha- uh, six things that have changed, five things that have an article of a house in the process of being lifted up on stilts. So people will want to see that. And uh, we'll wrap it up with one of the most important things that hasn't changed, your final item, item number five on the hasn't changed list. Sea levels are still rising. Hello, Washington. Hello, Beijing. And we leave it there. Six things that changed since Sandy and five that haven't. See them all at WNYC.org. WNYC's Matthew Sherman and Janet Babin. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Now, Sandy imprinted itself on our lives, sometimes in ways that have only become evident over time. The storm for Celestina Ramos and her great-grandson, Rashari, to quickly evacuate their apartment. One year later, they're back at home. But Ramos says her grandson is changed. She can see that every time she takes him to the park. We came back like five days after Sandy, and uh, we decided to take a walk in the FDL park. And when he saw the trees all broken down, he says, I, Mommy, the stone's going to hit us again. I said, no, Papi, don't worry. And a year later, he's, we go to the park, but he says, you know, the stone took all, all the trees, the beautiful trees. And he's not the same. Have I ever saw a storm anywhere? Like, the real storm, like, from right over there? No. No. Except this one, and you didn't saw it because we were upstairs. Yep. Put this in the garbage, please. That and this. You see, uh, anything that he has, we answer. We don't go around, you know. I grew up like that. I'm, I have 16 brothers and sisters, so everybody talk, and maybe our father will ask you when we come from school what happened today, and we talk about it. We're not going to be afraid of the dark, no TV, no nothing, and he was very depressed. I can't go without a TV. He's very afraid. When it rains, says, Mommy, the Sandy's coming back. I said, well, no, Papa, it's not coming back. 
That was Celestina Ramos, who's 65 years old, with her 9-year-old great-grandson, Rashari, talking to WNYC's Ilya Meritz. They live in the Campos Plaza housing project in the East Village. We want to know how your life has changed after Sandy, and what time of day do you think about that the most? Post your story on our interactive digital clock at WNYC.org. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Still to come this morning, why de Blasio and Loda are both running against the green borough taxis. John Meacham on lessons from Thomas Jefferson for how President Obama can wield power after the government shutdown. And more. Stay with us. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. WNYC.